I want to share with you the story of Christmas, the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. And by doing this, I'm just going to take you through some of the key elements of what we as Christians believe, and to tell the story with a little deeper emphasis on areas that people just don't comprehend, and they don't get it. So let's start with this. Jesus was sent by the Father as a promise to fulfill Scripture. And in the Old Testament, there are over 315 calculated, specific prophecies that the Messiah was going to fulfill. Now, it says this in Psalm 40, verse 7, Lo, I come, and in the volume of the book it is written of me. The writer of Hebrews said that about Jesus. And so, in the Old Testament, it was written that Messiah would come. In Luke, it says, as Jesus was walking with the two on the road to uh, uh, Emmaus, he was speaking to his apostles after he rose from the dead, and he said, all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So again, he's referring to the prophecies of the Old Testament that they were all referring as promises and prophecies of the coming Messiah, which Jesus said, that's me. It was written of me. And last of all, in the book of Revelation, it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises and all of God's word and all of the Bible. And so that's what the Lord wanted to bring, his word to life so that we could see it and understand it. 315 specific Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus. And he fulfilled them all. Even beyond the 315, there are some 360 that are shadows and types of what, the, pro, of what uh, the Messiah would do. And Jesus fulfilled them. So I want you to consider what the odds are, if you went to Vegas and you had these odds, you'd be in good shape, that someone could fulfill 315 specific prophecies. Now let's just take eight out of the 315 prophecies. And a man named Peter Stoner, chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College, chairman of the Science Division of Westmont College, professor emeritus of the Science Department at Westmont College, and professor emeritus at the Mathematics and Astronomy uh, Division of Pasadena City College. He's a believer. He put these statistics together, and he said this, just taking eight of the 315 prophecies for one person to fulfill would cal be calculated to be 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros after it. That's a pretty big number. And he calculated that Fulfilling eight prophecies out of 315, one person doing that, would be like taking silver dollars and putting them side by side over the state of Texas, and they would be two feet high for the probability of one person to fulfill eight of the 315 prophecies. That's pretty outrageous, isn't it? What would it take then? For someone to fulfill all 315 as Jesus did. It's crazy, it's crazy isn't it? That's crazy. And, and that's amazing. And if you would take the time to look at these prophecies. Now, here's the problem. Many people look at them and they look at the Old Testament. They go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Says that. And then they go to the New Testament. Oh, yeah, it kind of looks like it. But what they're missing are the ages between. 
They're missing all the hundreds and thousands of years between when it was spoken, in what land, to what people, to the fulfillment in all those hundreds and thousands of years later to another land and another city and another group of people where it was actually fulfilled. What they're missing is the signs and wonders in the heavens and the earth that were moving and shifting so that the star would deliberately shine and move over the city of Bethlehem. They're missing the cosmos and the ages and the the reason between all of it because we got it in one book they're missing the awe and the wonder of what god did in bringing this to pass so let's just take a look at this and consider what it took to come to pass that jesus would do this i want to take a look at the how jesus was born because how he was born is pretty amazing you ever look at something that's made and you go how did they do that how could they make that? You ever see people who build little ships in a bottle? How did they do that, right? I mean, this is far beyond a ship in, the ba- in a bottle. We saw 315 prophecies fulfilled by one person. This is amazing. So how did it happen? Let's start at the beginning. What about Mary and Joseph? What's the big deal? So Mary had a kid. They say that she was impregnated by a Roman soldier, this virgin birth stuff. Come on. How many of you know that many churches are no longer even believing in the virgin birth? Which is sad. It's a sad situation. What's so important about the virgin birth and why? Well, let's consider both Mary and Joseph. They were not just any two kids. They were very specifically called in the line of David. The prophecies declared all the way back from Adam in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. And through King David we see that his descendant would reign and rule on the throne of David. And what we come to realize, if you will look in the book of Luke chapter 3, you will see a genealogical line that is Mary's. And it takes her back through Heli and all the way back to one of David's children, Nathan. He was the firstborn. And so through the genetic line of David, Mary was of that tribe. So her offspring would be in the line of David, which fulfilled prophecy. Now, interestingly enough, in Matthew chapter 1, we see that it's listing Joseph's legal fa- as the legal father all the way back to David. Joseph was in fact a relative and through the bloodline of David's son Solomon, who was the king, appointed king over Israel from David. And so he is from the royal line. So Joseph was from the royal line of Solomon and Mary from the genetic line of Nathan. What's so important about that? Well, that would prove one thing, that Jesus is from the line of David. And so, that's the rightful heir to the throne, King David. But something interesting happened here in the line of the Solomon's royal line, and that's with this guy, Jeconiah. He was an evil king, a son of David through the years, but he did some pretty lousy stuff. And according to Jeremiah 22, verses 24 to 30, God cursed that line of Jeconiah and said, no son of yours will ever reign on the throne of David. Oh, nice going, God. You just blew it. 
<laughs> what are we going to do when you curse the line of Jeconiah, who is from the line, the royal line from Solomon? How is someone going to reign on that throne? And the Messiah is supposed to reign on the throne of David, and you just cursed the throne of David. Were you just too hot? Were you just too angry? And now you made a big mistake. No, in fact, what God was doing was making it so specific and so unique that no one, not just anyone, could fill the role of the Messiah. It had to be very specific. Now, consider this. In fact, if Jesus was born from Joseph, being his father, Jesus would be no different than any other descendant of Adam. Because we know, according to Scripture, that the entire human race is cursed because of Adam's sin. And we all die a human death because the wages of sin is death. And so if Jesus were born of Joseph or any other human blood, he would be under the curse of Adam as well. So there's a double curse on this line. The curse of Adam, which of course everybody is under that curse. Even Mary uh, was under that curse, being born of mankind, and her blood was tainted under the curse. And then of course we have the curse of Jeconiah, which was pronounced on that godly line. How in the world are we going to have Jesus bypass a double curse? That's where the virgin birth comes in. If you'll see in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says this, A shoot or a sprout will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. Why would they say the stump of Jesse? From his roots a branch will bear fruit. Why would he call the, the line of David a stump? Because it was cut off of the, by the curse against Jeconiah. So the family tree of David is cut off. But God prophesied that even though it's cut off, a branch, a sprout will come out of that trunk. Could I tell you the Hebrew word for sprout? The Hebrew word for sprout is nazer. Does that word sound familiar to you? Nazer? Yeah. In fact, there was a town called Sprout Town. You know what name that was? Nazareth. Nazareth. And who lived in Nazareth? Yeah, he grew up there. We see Mary and Joseph there. And coming out of that town, we see them. Now, here's the interesting thing. Here's the fascinating thing concerning the virgin birth. You see, there's the curse upon mankind. So Messiah, if he is going to be pure and spotless, could not be born of man or he'd be tainted from Adam. And if he's born from Joseph's line, he'd be under the curse of Jeconiah. So how did this take place? God said in Isaiah 7 verse 14 that, Behold, I shall give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child, and his name shall be what? Emmanuel, God with us. And we know that that is a prophecy concerning Messiah. And what happened is, when God came to Mary, Gabriel said, God is going to overshadow you and place that seed in your womb. God had given birth and had planted that seed in Mary. So by God putting the seed in Mary, she gave birth to a full human being, a man, child, if you will, because he was 
born from a woman. And yet the seed was not tainted from the seed of Adam. Therefore, he is of God and fully man, fully God. Born apart from the curse of Adam. And the interesting thing about the virgin birth is that you can look up medical dictionaries and medical books that the baby's blood does not mingle with the mother's blood. A mother and a baby can have two different blood types. And therefore, the blood of Jesus, which was pure, never touched the blood of Mary or that of a fallen human being. His blood was spotless and without sin. That's the importance of the virgin birth. That His blood was not blemished or cursed by the bloodline of Adam. And by the way, not born of Joseph, he bypassed the curse of Jehoiakim, but Joseph was his legal father. Therefore, he received the right to be the king of the Jews because he was from the royal line through Joseph and the kingly line legally through Mary of the line of David. And therefore, bypassing both curses. And so the virgin birth is essential to the blood of Jesus and why He was able to give His life to die for us. He was sinless, without sin, and that blood is perfect and will never die. That's the reason we celebrate Christmas. Now, how many of you remember this? God just so happened that in the timing of all this, Mary's pregnant with Jesus, and a census is being taken. And the census declares, and Luke tells us exactly when that date was and when it happened, and you can look in the annals of history and look up the records, and there was Augustus made a census and commanded all the Jews to go back to their hometowns of their family origin. And where were Mary and Joseph? In what town? They were in Nazareth. Where did they have to go? Bethlehem. Why? Bethlehem is what? The city of David. And their family tree is through? David. You with me? Okay, good. So they had to journey back to, to Bethlehem. Micah tells us about Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 in a prophecy says, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. We know that Jesus was the Word and was with God. He always was. And as it is written of Him in Scripture, He came into Mary. For a body you have prepared Me, the psalmist writes, and Jesus declares in the book of Hebrews. And it speaks of Christ being born. And so He is going to Bethlehem. He will be the ruler of Israel. And it is written of Him from eternity past. So they're on their way to Bethlehem. Now who else is on their way to try and find this Savior, this King the wise men. And how many wise men were there? We have no idea. Absolutely no idea. Most traveling bands of people did not travel in just threes. They were caravans. They were much larger. Why do you think we say there were three wise men? Because we saw that there were three gifts. So we figure, well, there must have been three of them. They all put their cash in and each bought a present. 
It, it could have been an entire caravan of 50, 60, 100 people. We have no idea. It could have been three. It could have been more. And so that's not important to the story, though it becomes part of the story. But they brought what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now these guys are astronomers. They were looking at what? The stars. Because they understood that something was going on on a cosmic level that there was a star shining brightly. And they understood, according to tradition and astrology and astronomy, that as they would look into the stars, whenever a mighty ruler or king was born, it was spoken of in the stars. Now, a lot of New Agers would agree with that and, and consider that for, for eons, many people have looked to the stars to see what's going on in, in all of the atmosphere and, and the changes on the earth. Well, God was moving heaven and earth to make this happen. And it's a pretty interesting story if you do research into the star of uh, Bethlehem. So the wise men went and followed the star, and they're on a journey. They end up, uh, and they, they come to King Herod in Jerusalem. They say, hey man, where's this, save, this king, a mighty king that's supposed to be born? And, and he goes, uh, I, I need to find out what's going on here. Uh, so he gets his astrologers and uh, astronomers, I should say, astronomers uh, together. And he says, you better find out where this king of the Jews is. And guess what? Did they find out? Yes, they did. And do you know what they researched to find out? The Old Testament Scriptures. And so they come along and they go, well, according to Micah, I guess it's Bethlehem. And so they set out on their journey to go there. And Herod is a bit worried and concerned. That story continues, but let's go now to the night when Jesus is born. Mary and Joseph come into this little town of, of Bethlehem. Again, it's a grotto, it's small, it's not that big of a town. As they come in, uh, and it's getting close uh, to the census, consider how many people are coming into that town because they have to go back to it uh, for this census. So it's overcrowded, it's overrun, there's no place for them to go. And so they, uh, she is ready to give birth to this child. They've got to find some place. The only place they can find is some cave where the animals dwell. And uh, so they go into that place. Now, I think that that's the beauty of God's design because if they were in a house somewhere, they were typically going to have to share a bed with other people. You rented spaces in beds at this time. You didn't have your own private room with a little shower and a this and that. All right. So I think God designed it so that they might that that they would have to go into this uh, alcove, this this cave, this stable, if you will, for the animals, that they would have their privacy. And this baby was born. Now the night that it was born, the angels showed up. How many of you know that? How many of you remember about the shepherds? Now, it is tradition in Judaism that Messiah would be announced from the Migdal Eder, and that is the tower of the flock. It was near Jerusalem, between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, and it's where the shepherds watched over their sheep in this season. And it's said that the sheep that they watched over were the sheep that were used in the temple sacrifices. And so it's interesting that the angels would come make an announcement to the shepherds who watched over the sacrificial lambs. And what was their announcement concerning? Yeah, they said this. 
And there in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And in that place of the Migdal Eder, where prophecy said that the angel would pronounce, or in other words, the pronouncement of Messiah uh, would come. Luke 2 says, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that uh, will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a feeding trough. That would be a weird situation. Uh, suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. God is shouting out from the glory of the sky. He's filled the cosmos, moving and shifting the stars for this presentation. Now He shouts out to the shepherds who are tending the sheep for this temple sacrifice. And we know what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why He was announced to the shepherds, because He is the Lamb of God. The shepherds then follow and they come to that stable and they minister and praise Jesus for what He had done. Now, in the meantime, Herod finds out that this baby was born in Bethlehem, or at least this supposed king that these guys uh, were looking for from another country. Uh, astronomers saying that a mighty king was being born in Israel according to the stars. And he asked his wise men to find out who it is. And he tricked them saying, hey, you know what? I'd like to go worship him too. Could you tell me? And so when he found out it was Bethlehem, he sent troops and soldiers to Bethlehem so that they would kill every baby two years old and younger. Time had lapsed now. Many times in the Christmas story, we see the wise men and the shepherds together. They were not together. They didn't show up at the same time. All right? And so... Uh, uh, Herod isn't exactly sure when this baby is born, when it's not going to be born, or ha has it already been born. So he's trying to make his situation uh, safe for himself. And uh, so he sends the soldiers in to kill the, all the babies two years old and younger. And uh, some speculate that the size of the city of Bethlehem and uh, the number of children were probably about 20 or less. So 20 or less children were killed uh, by Herod to protect his ego. And it says this, that uh, when Herod realized in Matthew 2.16 that he had been outwitted by the Magi as they went off, he was furious and he gave orders to kill the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And the prophecy of Jeremiah 31.15 says this, This is what the Lord says, A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. So they speak of Rachel's wailing over the children that were killed. Now in the meantime, the Magi come and visit the baby Jesus. And again, they are, if you'll look in the book of Luke, you'll see that Mary and Joseph are now in a house. So they are in a home in Bethlehem, and the Magi come to him, and they speak of this king being born according to the stars of the sky. 
It says that Mary hides all of these things in her heart. And she begins to wonder about them and consider all that God is doing. And the reason that's important, and the reason it's important, it's written in the book of Luke, because Luke tells us in the very first chapter that the information he has gathered is because he has interviewed the people specifically who were in the story. And so who do you think he interviewed? Mary. And she pondered these things in her heart. What mother wouldn't? When three kings from another land show up and say, "Uh, we heard from heaven that your kid's a king. I think I'm going to scrapbook that. (laughs) Right? So they bring him three gifts. What do they bring him? Gold. That's what you bring a king. Frankincense. And myrrh. Now, gold is what you present to a king who is royal, who is worthy, and should be celebrated as such. Frankincense is a unique perfume that is highly expensive, and it's a fragrance in Judaism that's used for the high priest and him alone. We understand that Jesus, of course, is our high priest, and it's a fragrance that they give to him, very rich and beautiful in its aroma. And last of all, myrrh. Myrrh is a precious ointment, and it's for healing, and they use myrrh to heal, but it is also used because it's so sweet and it's so uh, costly of a perfume, they use it for burying people. And myrrh is what they went to put on Jesus the morning of the resurrection when Mary and the others were going to the tomb to anoint his body. And so at his birth, he was given gold as a king, frankincense as our high priest, and of course myrrh because it's an anointing unto death. And we know that Jesus came to do what? To die. He is the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. That's why He was announced to the shepherds. And so as a king, He was honored. As a sacrifice for sin, the shepherds honored Him. And the angels sang the song about Him. And so, that's the story of Jesus. Now, the angel, Gabriel, spoke to Joseph and said, you need to get out of here because Herod is coming after you. And so, Joseph takes Mary and the baby Jesus and they flee and go down to Egypt where they were going to be safe. Now, don't you find it interesting? They were very poor, weren't they? Mary and Joseph were very poor. How do we know that? Well, on the eighth day, they were to present Jesus to the temple. That's part of the Jewish law. On the eighth day, you're to redeem back your firstborn son from the Lord. And you're to bring a sacrifice. You're to bring a sacrifice of a lamb. Unless you're too poor. If you're poor, you bring two turtle doves. And in the book of Luke, we see that Mary... When they went to the temple, they offered two turtle doves as the sacrifice for Jesus. That would indicate their level of poverty. When they came to the temple, there was one woman named Anna who was a prophetess who was praying and seeking the Lord. There was a prophet named uh, Simeon or Simon. And as he was there, the Lord had told him, you will not die until you see Messiah. And when he saw that baby being presented in the temple, he rejoiced and said, now I may die, I have seen Messiah. You know what's really unique about all of this too? 
on the eighth day, on the day of presentation, when the baby is to be circumcised, I find it fascinating that according to science, it's on the eighth day that vitamin K kicks in to a baby, and that's the coagulating agent for blood. And so that on that eighth day, when that baby's circumcised, it's the day when God had ordained in the human body for the blood to coagulate. I just find that, again, fascinating with the Lord. And so that baby was presented, and then they came from the temple, and they needed to flee to Egypt. And as they were fleeing to Egypt, but they're very poor, how are they going to make this trip? Well, they had some gold with them, didn't they? And the frankincense and myrrh. They had enough finance given to them by these wise men that they could escape down into Egypt and live there safely until the angel of the Lord told them they could go back. Herod had died, and they were ready to go back. And in the Old Testament, the prophets said in Hosea 11.1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew 2.14 says, So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, and returned after uh, it was free to go back. Now, I know that this prophecy for Hosea is speaking to the nation of Israel that was delivered out of Egypt, but it's also a prophecy of how Christ came out of Egypt and back into Nazareth where they lived. Now, saying all that, that's the story. That's the story. But there's one other aspect to it, another prophecy. We haven't covered 315 of them. We've only covered a few. But consider this. In Genesis 49, verse 10, written 1,689 years before Jesus, Moses said this, The scepter, the kingly scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And that's a reference to Messiah. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. This is a messianic prophecy, saying that the authority and the power to rule will not depart from Israel and a lawgiver from between its feet until the Messiah comes and he will gather all the people together. What's interesting about this is that just about AD 6, I'm sorry, BC 6 or BC 7 that year, there is written in the Midrash, uh, the rabbinical writings, that the Sanhedrin ripped their clothes and began to wail in the streets of Jerusalem. Because the Roman authorities at that point, by the time it got to 6 or 7 B.C., they had taken the authority away from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem from pronouncing a death sentence for anybody who had broken the law of Moses. In other words, they neutered the authority of the Sanhedrin to call upon the law of God and its judgments. And the Sanhedrin began to weep, and they pronounced on that day, and you can look in the, again, the history books, on that day they wrote that the scepter has departed from Judah, and Shiloh has not come. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because most believe that Jesus was born in 4 B.C. And so, had Shiloh, had Messiah come? Yes, he had. Jesus was already born 
And in that time, the scepter was removed from Israel. The ability to make the law of Moses stick with its own people. As a matter of fact, some 33 years after that, they couldn't kill Jesus, could they? They had to do what? Get Rome to do it. Because as they themselves pronounced, the scepter had been taken away from us. But Shiloh hadn't come. But had he? Yes, he had. And he had fulfilled this scripture as well. I mean, these are pretty amazing, don't you think? These are just some of the intricacies of what God did in order for Christ to be born, to fulfill prophecy. And the reason we believe in the virgin birth and the lineage of King David, when Pilate nailed that sign over Jesus' head on the cross that said, Jesus, King of the Jews, he was right. Jesus is the legal and royal heir to the throne of David through Mary and through Joseph. But because he was born of a virgin, his blood was pure and spotless. And because he lived a spotless life and is Shiloh who completed and fulfilled the law of God, when he died, he took our sins upon him because he was spotless and God judged him. But because his blood was pure, it paid the price and canceled the debt of sin and death. That's what we believe. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we rejoice. Now that's the how. But the question is really, why? Why? We can wow people and show them the intricacies of how God fulfilled this, of how He moved the stars in the heavens to align so that one would shine over the town of Bethlehem and bring astronomers from foreign lands to bring gifts in all the mixture of the history uh, that would allow them to go down to Egypt in safety and to move. I mean, it's a complex, amazing experience, isn't it? And so, that's the how. But the bigger point is this. Why? And so anybody listening to this needs to understand the why. Can I tell you, there's so many things in Scripture to learn the how did God do this. But there are things beyond our understanding of how God does anything. But That's not the point. And in our scientific society, everybody wants to know the how it's done. How it's done. How does God do this? How does God do that? The big question is why? Why? That's the story of Christmas. If there's anything we can share with anybody as Christians, it's why God did this. And the why is very simple. It's for you. It's for you. That's why God did this. And in speaking this to anybody and sharing this message of God so loving the world that He gave His Son so that who would ever believe in Him would not perish in eternal damnation but have eternal life and forgiveness that we could live with Christ for eternity. Our sins forgiven and removed. That's the why it was done for us. If there's anything we could share, it's to bring this message into the present tense and into your life and into your heart and say, He loves you. He came to this earth for you. And He died for you. Now, you have to consider 
your response to God. This was done so that you might have life and life abundantly. It's about you. What will you do with all that God had designed so that Christ could be born? What will you do with it? You can ignore it. And I read a quote this week that I found fascinating. It was a real turn on words. He said, I forget the person that said this, but he said this, if you don't want to deal with Jesus, then stop sinning. Because that's the only way you'll not have to deal with him. He came here for sinners. He came to eradicate and cleanse us from our sin. And so we're all going to have to face him because we're all sinners. And so now is the time to face him when he offers you salvation from your sin. If you reject him, you will still have to face him. Because anybody listening to this tape knows that they have fallen short of the glory of God. And God so loved the world, He died for you. That's what we celebrate. We celebrate the gift of God in Christmas. But what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about the people over there? And what about this in history? And what about what happened here? And how did that happen? Well, you can ask all those questions, and those are good questions to ask. But they, are they enough to deny that God loves you? And that this is about you and God. You're going to have to come to an answer concerning the love of God and how much He cares for you. Christmas is here because God so loved the world He sent His Son so that if we would trust Him, our sins would be cleansed and we would have eternal life with Him. That's Christmas. And so that's what we celebrate. And I'm encouraging you to share that with anybody and everybody you can. The love of God. Amen? Let's bow our heads.